Aqua Hirsch, welcome to Tell a Friend. Thank you, Brian. Good to be here. So, first of all, let me just ask you, how are you doing mentally, physically and spiritually with everything going on in the world right now? Well, thank you for asking. I think like many of us, and when I say us, I mean people who are in the space of doing anti-racism work, having these conversations, trying to push for change all the time. It's a bit of a mixed blessing because on the one hand, it's really welcome to hear the conversations that we have taking place in the mainstream and the news cycle suddenly going from being quite hostile to these conversations to actually embracing them. But at the same time, it's a news cycle, which means it comes and goes. And I think that it's working out how you can use this moment to continue to sustain change that I really care about and not get distracted by people who've kind of discovered this in the moment but aren't really invested in making it a sustainable movement. So I think there are a lot of people who are invested in the long term and it feels as if it's easier to find your allies now because we're all out there and we're all speaking, we're all becoming very visible and that's really good. But it's also not getting distracted and keeping your eye on the long term struggle, which is not new to our generation and won't be finished when the next generation comes. So it's how can we just take this forward as far as we can at this time? So um, as far as my kind of mental and physical and spiritual health goes, I think it's intense right now because it's just so much is happening in such a short period of time. I honestly feel like a kind of lifetime's worth of change has happened in a few weeks and that's good. Um, but it is intense and, you know, I keep kind of saying to myself, the revolution can't be diarized. You know what I mean? Like you can't, uh, you couldn't know this would happen now. It might not be convenient, but convenience is not something you're going to look back on at the end of your life and think, I'm really glad I didn't do everything I could because it wasn't convenient. It's like you need to make sure that you understand the importance of this time and be strategic about how you work with it. So I'm a little bit exhausted, if I'm honest, but I'm also energized by the incredible activism that's going on all around and the sense of unity. I think for me, one of the frustrations in recent years has been this kind of divide and rule project, you know, that populists and other right-wing movements have been trying to create a false impression that African-Americans, Black British people, people in the Caribbean, that we all have completely separate experiences and struggles and I think that this moment is really helping to undo some of those false divides and that's something that gives me a lot of energy and hope as well. Now when George Floyd was murdered and obviously it was broadcast around the world a lot of white people were shocked by this and I was wondering when you saw that were you shocked or was this just a continuation of something that you had seen and known about? Every single time I see a black person being murdered by the state, it is traumatic. There's no way of getting away from it. It never becomes something you're used to. It never is something you're numb to. But I say every time because it's happened so many times. And I think that's one of the things that's difficult about this time is that, you know, you really live the pain of that experience and having to see it constantly everywhere doesn't make it less painful. So. You know, I think of all the other cases in the US that have been deeply shocking and traumatic and all the cases in Britain. There are so many in Britain and I think people still don't know about them. You know, the case of Sean Rigg, the case of Sheikh Ubayo, the case of Nazeem Mohammed, the case of Cynthia Jarrett. Going back decades, unresolved, people have not faced charges or been prosecuted. Justice hasn't been done. And we still live with these narratives in the UK as well that, you know, when a black man 
is met with the, the force of the state, he's somehow got this superhuman strength that justifies an unbelievable amount of physical force that ends in his death. Even when it's a child, even when it's a teenager like Nazim Mohammed, these, these narratives live. And so there's just so much pain and trauma bound up in these incidences. Um, so I wasn't shocked by what happened to George Floyd because I've seen it before, but that doesn't mean it wasn't shocking and traumatic and painful. And it's almost a cumulative effect. You know, every time you see this, it brings up all of the other experiences and, and also things that you've witnessed in your own life that maybe weren't as violent and as extreme, but are all linked to the same idea of stripping the humanity from black people and treating us as if we're not equal. And I think that that's something that can manifest in a more subtle way, or it can manifest in the most overt way, as in the murder of George Floyd. Now, you've been speaking about issues of race for a long time. And in 2018, you released British, Brit-ish. And I was wondering if you could talk to my audience about what motivated you to write this incredible book that is almost part memoir and part social commentary. What inspired you to write it? The genesis of the book was um, when I lived in Ghana. I was the West Africa correspondent for The Guardian between 2011 and 2014. And I have always wanted to live in Ghana. My mother's from Ghana. I've always felt part of the Ghanaian and African and black diaspora. And I've always believed that it's important for black people to understand the African continent and feel a sense of wanting to contribute to the growth of the African continent. There were lots of reasons why I wanted to live in Ghana. But when I was there, it was at a time when Britain was still really suffering from the effects of the credit crisis. So the economy was in a bad place, there was a recession, and Ghana was booming. Ghana was the fastest growing economy in the world at that time. And what I found in Ghana was that there were very many young black people from the diaspora, some with Ghanaian heritage, some not directly Ghanaian heritage, um, you know, descendants of the transatlantic slave trade, people from the Caribbean or in America, but who had the sense of blackness and felt that Ghana was a country that was a natural place to go to, to experience their um, African heritage. But when it came to the young black British people I met in Ghana, I found that there were kind of two phenomena. Like one was very positive. They, like me, felt, I want to be part of Ghana. I want to live in Africa and work here and I want to contribute. But, and also a sense that, you know, this economy was rising and this was a really positive time to be in an African country. But the negative flip side to that, which I also related to, was a lot of young black British people saying, I don't feel like there's a future for me in Britain. Like I don't feel the sense of opportunity that I have here in Britain. I feel like doors are closed to me. I feel like the future um, is going to be a struggle for me. And these were people who were talented, you know, who were entrepreneurs, who had first class degrees, who were innovative enough to pick up and move to a different country with a plan. And I thought that the fact that they felt so excluded by Britishness Give, even though they were British, you know, been born in Britain, raised in Britain, spent their whole lives in Britain, and still felt so excluded from Britain that they actually left. And on such a scale, because we're not talking about a few anecdotal individuals, there are thousands of people doing this. And it really made me think that there was something going wrong with Britishness, that it was excluding people who should have been its core constituents. And so that's not to say I don't think young black people should move to African countries. I think that's great, but it should be a choice. It shouldn't be by force because you feel that there is no future for you in the country that you grew up in. So that led me on this project of asking myself, what has gone wrong with Britishness? Why don't I, and I mean this personally, why don't I identify with Britishness? You know, why do I always feel reluctant to 
actually describe myself as British? What is it about the project of British identities that has become so alienating and exclusionary? And when I asked myself that question, it took me on this journey of really understanding British history and how we have never been honest about it, of realizing how embedded racism is in so many of the ideas and symbols of Britain and realizing that the terms in which so many black people were brought to Britain were unequal and were destined to keep us at the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum. And once I started exploring those, that really became the foundation of my book. And I didn't really plan on making it autobiographical. Um, I'm a journalist, you know, I'm most comfortable telling other people's stories. But what happened was that I really wanted it to be something that people like my younger self would read, because this was what I needed when I was young to help me navigate this world that I was growing up in. That that it was there was no space to speak about it. It was kind of taboo to talk about. I didn't even have the language or the vocabulary to unpick these themes. And I thought if I can use the journey I've been on to make it easier for a younger generation to do this work and make sense of this reality, then I have to do it. And in a way, including some of my personal story about my childhood, my family and my relationship, if that helped humanize it so that people could relate to it and would read it, then I thought it was worth doing. And then of course, ironically, like that's the thing that people most latched onto in my book that they want to talk to me about. But I think that's how we are. You know, we relate to human stories and I use those human stories as a device for like a much broader commentary about what's happening in Britain today. Yeah, I think you have a plethora of books out there on the market that talk about the issue of race. But the reason your book, uh, Rennie's book, have become so popular is because of that personal touch. And I think it was Toni Morrison that said, you should always write a book you want to read. And exactly. the story you know best is yours. But in terms of the reaction to the book, I mean, how... How did you find that? Because it was a very polarized reaction. You had the the likes of, um, shall I say, Piers Morgan, who, you know, had his <laughs> problems about some of the stuff you raised. But then there was also a large market that really appreciated you sharing that story. Yeah, I think if you want to tell the truth, it's always polarizing because there are people who are heavily invested in the lie. And that's certainly the case in Britain, I think. This isn't even really to blame people. We have all been conditioned to believe in this completely false narrative about Britain's history, Britain's destiny. This idea that white British people are somehow morally and culturally superior to other races, which was the foundation for Britain's empire, is still very much alive. And we all, when we go to school, get conditioned with this version of history that puts Britain on the right side of history at every point and just sidesteps any part of history that doesn't conform to that sense of moral greatness. And I think that's created a real fragility and made it very painful for people who believed in that and felt bolstered by that, you know, felt their self-esteem and their pride dependent on that narrative. It's very painful for them to realize that it's not true. And sometimes when people's security feels threatened, they don't engage with the new information, they lash out at the messenger. So it wasn't a surprise to me that um, people who were vested in the status quo felt threatened by new information that made them have to actually think about the racist connotations of the, the, the ideology they'd had. But actually more of a surprise to me was how many people embraced the book. Because I, as I was saying, I kind of was trying to reach my younger self. That was my focus. It's like if I could reach somebody who went through what I went through, then I, my job is done, really. Um, and I hoped that in doing that, there would be lots of other people who would also relate to it, because I suppose there's just an honesty in speaking to your younger self that other people can always latch on to. But what took me by surprise was how many, you know, middle-aged white people from 
um, the home counties or people from different ethnic minority backgrounds who've had really different class or race experiences um, and people in other countries as well, other diasporas completely different, you know, the Jewish diaspora in Australia or the Chinese diaspora in America, how many different people related to my book. And it made me appreciate in a new way the universality of this experience, I think, in the way that countries have developed in the 20th century, so dependent on immigrant labor, so dependent on former empires, and that there hasn't been a space for people like us to tell our stories. And that, you know, has translated very broadly. Um, and, you know, even people, white people who I would have thought were white British talking about their Irish heritage and how that always made them feel other or alienated in some way. And I just think that our society is so much more complicated than those myths that we were taught at school equip us to understand. So that was a really pleasant surprise. And I think it made me realize that we're all failed by the overly simplistic and dishonest version of history that we get taught. None of us have been equipped by our education to actually understand our contemporary society. And everyone's suffering from that. But they might be suffering from it because they're fragile and they lash out at someone like me, or they might be suffering from it because they needed a book like mine and didn't have one and, and wanted to be able to have these conversations. So I think that it just tapped into something that um, many people experience. And I'm really happy if it helps people navigate that in some way. Now, in terms of talking about um, race and well, the subtitle of your book, Race, Identity and Belonging, do you believe that black people should be engaging in these dialogues with white media? Because I know yourself, Kahinde Andrews and uh, David Olasoga are often on TV talking about these, these issues. And, you know, I'm thankful for that. But do you think that that's a, an effective way to go forward? I mean, I'm really reluctant to ever tell people what to do. I certainly felt it was useful, otherwise I wouldn't have done it. But I think that it's complicated because my rationale for going into mainstream media spaces to talk about my work and uh, the knowledge I built up through my self-education, because you never, as I said, learn this at school or university, um, I did so with the intention that it would help open up a conversation in the mainstream and that, that it would be healthy for us as a society to have these conversations. And in a way, I wanted to kind of lead by example by having those conversations. But what I found was that you're often entering such a hostile space, talking to people who have no interest in engaging with a rational debate, whose only interest is to shut you down or undermine your lived experience, that sometimes being complicit in those discussions is actually a retrograde step. And it almost sends the message that it's acceptable to put a black person, a token black person, in a room with hostile white people whose main aim is to shut them down. So I think it's an art, not a science, to start to work out what spaces are genuinely interested in the conversation and progressing the narrative. And, it, and you also realize the spaces that are just using you as a, and, and, and almost your abuse, normalizing your abuse as a form of entertainment and clickbait. And those are the spaces that I won't enter anymore, personally. Um, I never judge other people because I think we all do our work and we all have different ways of communicating our message and engaging in the conversation. But I would certainly say that you don't owe it to anyone to go onto a media platform and explain yourself. And you especially don't owe it if their agenda is to try and undermine you. And I also feel quite strongly as well that racism is not an opinion. You know, It's not a subject to be debated with a for and against. And I think that we should push back against the idea that 
um, there is this kind of false equivalence that it's okay to debate with a racist because in the end you get the balance. You know, that's not a balance. Just in the same way you wouldn't debate with somebody who was pro-genocide or pro-rape. You know, there are standards that we hold as unequivocal foundational values in a democracy and racism is contrary to all of those. So it's, it doesn't deserve a legitimate space. I think what's changing now is an understanding of what racism is. So I think a lot of broadcasters would say, well, we don't promote racism. But when I look back at some of the debates I took part in, that were clearly racist narratives being put against me. And I think that I, this is one thing that I feel is a positive change at the moment, this widening of people's understanding of what racism is. You know, most British people think racism is having violent personal thoughts towards people of colour because you hate them. They don't understand that racism is systemic and structural, that unless you have done the work of understanding race and dismantling it in your own um, ideology, and unless you've worked out how you're going to use your life to help undo racism, then you're going to be racist. It's not your fault. You've been conditioned into a racist system. And so this idea that people get extremely defensive about being called racist and think, and make it, make themselves the victim of this false accusation rather than engaging with actually what racism is, is something that I've encountered very frequently. So you have to know in your own mind what racism is and where you draw the line. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, I, I've evolved my understanding of my role in that. And I think other people probably need the space to evolve their own understanding as well. So my issue is more with the broadcasters and the media platforms that push racist ideas and expect us to engage with them rather than criticising individuals who take part in those spaces. Now, in the past few weeks with everything going on uh, with the George Floyd murder, a lot of black people, me included, have been inundated with messages from, you know, well-meaning white people who are asking, what can I do to unlearn? How, you know, how can I better inform myself? And I wanted to ask you, do you have any advice for black people who want to share their experiences and want to engage in this dialogue, but also in a way that doesn't spiritually burden them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I relate to the question. I think I'm fortunate in a way because my book came out in 2018. I had that moment then. You know, when my book came out was the time that kind of white friends who'd never really thought or engaged in it before had to deal with the message that I had put in my book and, and wanted to have those conversations. Um, and I was able to deal with it by just telling them to read my book, which that's in reality. And to be completely honest, one of the reasons I wrote my book was I just didn't want to keep having to have those conversations over and over again. And I thought, let me put the most authoritative, well-researched, well-thought-through version of what I am trying to say in a book and people can read it rather than me have to do the work of repeating it over and over again. I mean, the flaw in that plan is that when you write a book about things, people want to talk to you about it more, which I hadn't actually necessarily foreseen. Um, But I think my advice would be to see the irony of white friends wanting to engage in anti-racism by having an expectation and almost a sense of entitlement that you should do the labor of educating them. You know, you can't be anti-racist while expecting more unpaid, unequal labor by your black friends. You're just repeating the problem. So do the work, educate yourself. And the books are there, not just my book, like you said. Rennie Edgel Lodge's book, David Olashoga's book, Akala's book, Emma Gaviri's book, Robin D'Angelo's book. There are so many books. And I think we all write them because we want to save other black people from having to explain themselves again and again. And I would also say, just based on the experiences of other people in my life who are going through this at the moment, that don't underestimate how traumatizing or triggering it can be to have to 
perform your experiences of racism for white friends, you know, and somebody close to me had a message from a friend who was actually angry with her. A white friend said to her, I'm so upset that the whole time we were at university together, you never told me about racism. And if you had, I would have been so much better equipped to understand what's going on now. And I just thought, how remarkably entitled to feel like she owed you to share her traumatic experiences of racism so that you would be better equipped to understand what's happening. You know, we don't owe anyone that. If you feel like sharing them, share them. But if you don't, ask them to do the work. Um, so that, that's what I would say. And there are lots of resources to help you have that conversation. And I think that's, that's really positive that we're building a resource base of materials that can help bring people up to speed without us having to carry the burden. Because it's not our problem. And this is the thing I think I would like the message to be. It's not our problem and it's not our job to educate people about racism. I think that stems from decades of regarding this as a kind of niche issue for black and brown people. It's primarily white people's problem and something that white people need to educate themselves about because we haven't had the luxury of insulating ourselves from it. We've been having to make sense of it our whole lives. They haven't, and this is time for them to get up to speed. And the solution to that is not to see it as our job, but to see it as their responsibility. Last week, you uploaded a video from the pledge where you were talking about the toppling of statues. This was actually before um, the ongoing uh, debates. And Nick Ferrari, your co-host on The Pledge, asked you, why do you stay in Britain if you have such a problem with it? And I was watching your facial reaction and I was just wondering, what were you thinking in that moment? I think I was actually hurt by that comment because Nick Ferrari is actually someone with whom I'm on quite friendly terms and he is not actually the person on that programme who I find most problematic. I mean, he has views that I strongly and profoundly disagree with, but he usually has the humility to admit when he's wrong and engage with what someone like me is saying. Um, and so it was the casual ease with which he made that comment that was hurtful. And I think what surprised me about the reaction to my tweet is, is that that happened a couple of years ago, but it wasn't a one-off. It happened all the time. It's actually quite a standard response that white people who haven't interrogated their own racism will, will respond when you say something they don't want to hear. And every time it was said, I regarded it as a racist trope and I would usually privately confront them and say, you know what this is, right? Um, and I was rarely taken seriously. And so it was just fascinating to me that when I posted that the other day, it got 3 million views overnight and just hundreds of thousands of people expressing their outrage. And I thought, the world has changed really fast because the other day everyone thought that was fine. So I think... It just shows as well what's being normalised in the media, that, that nobody at the time in the production team or on the, on the channel thought that that was a serious thing. You know, it was just part of everyday debate to them. And I knew that it was wrong, but I still thought that it was useful for me to be in that space challenging it. But that's a view I constantly challenged as well. I was constantly asking myself, Am I doing more harm by being on this program where these, these like toxic ideas are normalized than good? Um, and it was difficult. It was a difficult space to be in. So in a way, I feel relieved now that everyone else can see how difficult it was at the time. And has he reached out to you since? No. No. You know, I 
like you said, this is not the first time it happens. I watch you on the show and I'm always seeing this go on, whether it's Carol or whether it's um, Nick Ferrari. And I've got to ask you, do you think Sky News have failed in their duty of care to one of their hosts, allowing you to go out there on the battleground and constantly be attacked about your humanity? Do you think they're failing in their duty? I think that um, I feel differently now that about programmes like that. And I would welcome a conversation with Sky News about how they can avoid normalizing racist narratives that are abusive for a person of color or a black person to experience in real time, but also in societal terms, normalize the idea that those are acceptable narratives. I do think the broadcasters have a responsibility to change. It's not just Sky News. I've been on almost every major um, British broadcaster where, where, where something of that type has happened. Um, and I think that is something that they need to be held to account for, yeah. I'll conclude our interview with a quick fire round. First of all, and I ask you to uh, fill in the sentence, the greatest misconception about me is? Huh. Uh, sorry, this is supposed to be quick fire. Um... There are so many, I don't know where to start. <laughs> I think that I'm, I'm well, too difficult, too difficult to do in a quick fire round. I would say something about that I'm always really combative because I'm actually pretty chill. What I fear most is? Selling out. I don't fear selling out, but I think that is the thing to be most fearful of. My biggest regret is? I don't have any regrets. I feel safest when? I am with people who share my values. I am most proud of? Rejecting conventional ideas of how you should pursue your career and doing the things that I believe in, whether or not they bring me success. Afro Hirsch, thank you for joining me on Telefriend. Thanks, Brian.